KRCL, 90.9 FM, HD1 in Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, on the web at krcl.org. Listener-supported community radio. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. I am Nick Burns, and this is Radioactive on your community connection, 90.9 FM KRCL, KRCL krcl.org. And this is, of course, your weekday local show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, DIY creatives everywhere. But before we jump into the show tonight, I just want to give a shout out and a thank you to all the KRCL supporters in the community. Here I am back in the KRCL studio after two years of guarding my health at home. It is just so exciting. The new facilities, the new board, it's just amazing. And it's all possible because of you, the community. So thank you for that. 40 years strong. And gosh, I've been here for about half of that. So tonight on the show, we will cover local rallies and resources. We got some good stuff to talk about. We also want to talk atmospheric science. And by that, I mean dust, I mean air pollution, and hot spots in the Great Salt Lake. And of course, what's behind it and what to do about it. Later on the show, and I didn't know this until recently, this is National Bike to Work Week. And of course, Bike to Work Day happens Friday the 20th. I hope you can be involved. So we'll talk with folks from the Bike Collective and from Sweet Streets. And yes, I cannot say that five times fast. But we'll talk about biking, we'll talk about safety, and we'll talk about bike safety from automobiles and more all here on the show tonight. Rallies and resources, Laura, hi. Hey, Nick Burns, welcome back. Good oh, to see you since Radiothon and uh, all that jazz, oh, so to speak. So um, nice to be here. I want to echo your thoughts. Thank you, everyone. You know, everything you hear is because of listeners like you who've donated in the past. And you can always do that anytime at krcl.org. But Rallies and Resources, Nick, it's a list we curate of things we think the radioactive listener might want to be aware of, might want to check out, get involved, get off the couch, volunteer or at least educate themselves. It's festival season, Nick. And <laughs> It's road construction oh, oh and gosh. festival season, yeah, yes. Yeah, you know, you had the Kilby Court thing over the weekend, and then coming up this weekend is Living Traditions. If you go to the Rallies and Resources page at krcl.org, at the top I've kind of grouped all the festivals, just like a quick hit of dates and some quick links. Like, uh, you know, we got Pride coming up June 4th and 5th. You've got the Ogden Arts Festival, June 11th, and then later in the month, the Utah Arts Festival, Juneteenth on the 17th, 18th, and 19th. Now Tons a holiday. Tons of stuff going on. Absolutely. Also, the uh, Open Streets Busker Fest happening June 24th and 25th, which brings us to a special guest and something that you can check out this month. It's called the Acoustic Music Stroll along the Jordan River Parkway, and Kim Angeli is with us. Hey, Kim. Hi, Laura. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me today. There you go. So, Buskerfest SLC, another thing saying five times might be hard to do. But I think we should probably get into this, and I want to talk about what you've got going on this stroll along the Jordan River Parkway. But Buskerfest SLC, buskering, a word that not many people know anymore. It's true. At its simplest definition, it is just a performer who is performing in public spaces for donations or tips. So that can lend itself to a lot of different genres and um, characters of what you might see in cities worldwide, 
for as early as history goes back, honestly, the world's first performance stage was the street. Yeah, exactly. Path, and the pathway, so to speak. the cartway, <laughs> and and what happens now? Are are there legal issues if someone wants to set up? I mean, I saw a guy playing his alto saxophone the other day. Um, I was driving by at too great of a speed to do anything about it, but I thought that's kind of cool. Um, are there legal? Do, can people get in trouble for? playing a guitar out on the street corner i mean there there's a permit that the city issues okay. that will out, outline some place and time restrictions but yes you can definitely legally busk in the city um the you know the trick is finding the, the best places where there's a lot of pedestrian density and where we're um, where it's worth your while so and people aren't driving by at 40 like i was that day and businesses like you <laughs> you know, is that, that a problem for folks? I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, it's a, you know, obviously you've got restaurant patios, you have things to consider. That's not to say there's not a, a lack of spaces. And what Open Streets is doing is really changing the fabric of downtown and what Main Street looks like. And having that extra space brings in pedestrians and brings in people mm-hmm. that these buskers need. So Open Streets, it's the Blocks SLC, which does a lot of mm-hmm. programming downtown. Full yep. disclosure, I have voiced some ads for them. <laughs> but they close streets. Yeah. So you can just kind of wander around, see what's going on. And then Busker Fest, a part of that, June 24th and 25th. And it's not just musicians. you got clowns, circus acts, a whole bit. Oh, the whole bit. Jugglers. We bring in um, traveling artists for this one as our headliners. Oh, and a lot of what you see is um, kind of the stunt stuff. I mean, there's some amazing stuff. Balancing and, you know, 12-foot tall unicycles while juggling flaming swords. Ooh. I mean, just it's just wild out there. With and no ticket talents. necessary, right? You oh, just no, wander no. around. Yep. It's free. And I can't, like I said, having those streets closed is such a benefit to this project. I personally like uh-huh. nothing more to, than to see people chosen over vehicles in the fabric of our downtown <laughs> i will it's, vote for that every time supposed to be a city yes <laughs> doesn't have to be a car parking lot mm-hmm. so that's coming up in june but you've also got something right in front of us may 26th at the jordan river parkway by the by the peace gardens right so we have we do a lot of um, smaller events leading into okay. the festival this is um Funded by the Salt Lake City Arts Council, so it's of their interest and mine too to do programming right in your in the smaller communities where not everybody has to get in their car again and drive downtown to experience culture cultural activities. So the acoustic music strolls are dedicated to the musicians of Buskerfest. We pull from a local talent pool. And we'll we'll place eight um eight acts along a section of the parkway by the Peace Gardens. Okay. And we just invite the community to come and bike, walk, stroll, roll. It's paved. It's ADA accessible there. And just enjoy the environment in which they live and the amenities that we have here. The park was beautiful. And you've already picked the musicians, or can folks still step up, apply, or maybe for a future event? So, so we booked this one okay. um, out right now. So we are. I am really hoping that this catches on. I'd love to do more of this smaller programming in various communities around Salt Lake. I truly believe that not everything has to be this big destination festival for you to have cultural experiences. Well, it, it, it's such a good idea because we see that regularly where people say, this is my little special neighborhood. This is my little part of town, me and my neighbors. You can't do that here. You think this kind of thing would be something those little neighborhoods would love. Yeah, absolutely. How'd it go? Yep. How'd it go on that first one? It was great. Oh my oh. gosh. We were watching the weather, of course. It was like the rainy, the rains of May. It was just last <laughs> Thursday, right? Last, Thursday. Okay, last yeah. week, yeah. Yeah, but it cleared up for us and it was just charming. It was wonderful. Yeah. I, I just really enjoyed the 
experience altogether. So this is a partnership with Salt Lake City Arts Council, which did brown bag for many decades, and mm. that has kind of gone away over COVID and the, the community has kind of changed and the need for, for that kind of um, service, in essence. But the small little bands that want to get out and play need something, and this really fills that niche. It really does. And it's um, like we were discussing earlier, I think coming out of COVID, it's just like sometimes the, the, the big crowd events can still feel socially taxing. And so I'm very interested right now in, I, and this is coming from, mind you, I'm a 15 years of experience in festival direction. Okay. So you have a long, you have a long history, farmer's market and on down. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I do think that there is a need for some of this smaller programming that's not you know, destination base. It's it's happening where you're at, where you live. I think that's a wonderful way to go I mean, for our city. At Salt Lake Community College, I'll brag, years ago, the marching band would just practice in the neighborhood in the summer and everybody would come out. It was just a little local thing on Wednesday yeah. nights. Oh my gosh. So this is free. Yes. You can walk along the parkway or, yep. like you say, rollerblade, bike, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. doesn't cost anything. Some people playing acoustic music, mm-hmm. 6 to 8, so evening stroll, May 26th. Mm-hmm. I've got a song to share. Who are some of the artists, though? Well, um, we have. it's funny. We have full bands like Mars Highway, for example, is a full bluegrass band. They'll come in and do a duo. We have Brother Chunky, who I think we're going to play a track yeah. from here yeah. today. Um, and now I'm on the bot. We have a fiddler that comes and joins us each week. We have some acoustic uh, singer songwriters. It's just a weird, it's like, I don't want to say weird. It's not weird. It's a great little mix of, we try to keep variety in the acoustic music scene too, because that's what we do best here in Utah. It's eclectic. We've got a ton of artists. It's not weird. It's eclectic. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so what's the Busker Fest uh, website where folks can check that out and start planning that in June? Okay, buskerfestslc.com. Pretty simple. Yes. Kim, thanks for coming in and stick around because uh, Nick's got more, but I got a little brother chunky for you. One of the featured artists on the 26th along the Jordan Parkway says you better run on KRCL. Shows you better run. 
Weeknights at 7 for Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report, an independent global news hour reporting headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. That's Democracy Now!, Weeknights at 7, right here on KRCL. We are back on Radioactive on your community connection, 90.9 FM KRCL, and of course, always on the web worldwide, just for you, KRCL. Joining us now, Professor Kevin Perry, an associate professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Utah. And we want to talk about air. It seems pretty simple, but the air is full of dust. So shout out and thank you to Salt Lake Tribune reporter Leah Larson. We'll link to her article in the show notes. And this conversation is aired through the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solutions journalism initiative that partners news, education, and media organizations, including KRCL, to help inform people about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done to make a difference before it's too late. Read all the stories at greatsaltlakenews.org. Professor Perry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So climate change, drought, um, great time to be a scientist interested in the air? Uh, yes, it is. Unfortunately, uh, Salt Lake City has always been a great place to study poor air quality because of the uh, inversions that we have in the winter, the uh, and more recently the the wildfires that we've been having suffering from from smoke uh, during the summers. Oh yes, I, so I mean, great time to be a scientist interested in dust in the air, but maybe not for the right reasons. But so let's just jump into this. There's been all this discussion about dust recently blowing in from hither and yon. What's in the air? I mean, is it particulates? Is it nasty chemicals? Is it heavy metals? What's blowing around up there? Unfortunately, it's all of the above. Uh, uh, so the dust itself can be dangerous uh, regardless of what it's made out of. Just if you breathe it, uh, some of those particles will end up in your lungs and people can have a physiological reaction to that. Uh, some people will have trouble breathing and end up in the hospitals. Uh, but uh, you know, my research is focused in on trying to find out what kind of toxic heavy metals might be in the dust. And unfortunately, we have found a significant quantity quantities of arsenic, which we think is naturally occurring uh, in the dust, uh, you know, along the Great Salt Lake. So, 
I remember 10, 20 years ago, the concern was mercury blowing in from gold mines in northern Nevada. That seems to, I want to say, take a back seat to the more immediacy of arsenic. Um, I've read about magnesium, tellurium, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, it's way more than just dust. Yeah, so I actually did research on the mercury transport okay. uh, 10 years ago as well. And we actually found that uh, the mines in Nevada were not the major source of mercury Ooh, being transported. It was actually uh, mercury that coming from coal combustion uh, from you know China and from the U.S. and from around the world. Um, so it's not something that we could deal with locally. Uh, the dust issue, however, is very different. Uh, we do have uh, significant sources of local dust uh, that is uh, basically... Uh, in part due to our water use policies and the water diversions that we've had, but it's also been exacerbated by the ongoing mega drought that we're in right now. Yeah, it's 1,200-year drought, and we've certainly covered that on the show, and we're certainly trying to offer solutions journalism when it comes to the Great Salt Lake. Um, does that mean your work as an atmospheric you know, science professional, doctor of atmospheric sciences, does that mean you spend your days working with like the water people and the soil people also, or— are you still all kind of compartmentalized in your research? So my research is very much interdisciplinary. Okay. So the project that I'm working on, I'm working with a soil scientist, I'm working with geologists, I'm working with a wildlife biologist, uh, working uh, you know, with a snow hydrologist, because the dust that comes off the Great Salt Lake just doesn't stop when it gets to our front door. Uh, it continues on up into the Wasatch Mountains and beyond, and for the skiers out there, they all know about dust on snow and what that does to uh, the quality of the snow and the melt rates as well. Not so good for your skis. So I'm, I think everybody's heard about that if you live here, the lake effect snow. You're talking about lake effect dust. Yeah, so what my primary concern is is that uh, you know we know we have poor air quality in the wintertime due to the inversions. We have poor air quality in the summer due to ozone and transported smoke. Uh, what we're getting now is in the spring and the fall, we're starting to get significant quantities of dust, which are closing our good weather window, our good air quality window that we normally have during those time periods. And so now, uh, you know, the longer that uh, we're in this drought, the longer that we use water unsustainably, uh, the uh, more likely we are to have year-round air quality problems. I'm just going to leave that silent for a minute because it could be very depressing. So you mentioned the dust blowing up, yes, onto the snow at Snowbird, affecting skiers and so on. But I mean, this dust and these heavy metals are also going to end up in all the headwaters of all the creeks and all the water that then flows back down to the Jordanelle and Deer Creek and a thousand other reservoirs. Not good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Professor Greg Carling down at uh, Brigham Young University is actually part of our team, and he's studying the impact of the dust transport on the aquatic ecosystems and, uh, uh, you know, the Provo River um, and other ones as well. Okay, so we should talk with him too. So when it comes to the dust we're experiencing now, it's easy to talk about the Great Salt Lake, but you have some research that points to some of this dust isn't blowing up from the lake. It's from elsewhere. So, you know, we live in the Intermountain West, and there are many playas which are basically dried up lake beds all throughout the Intermountain West. And all of those dust beds, uh, all of those playas can be d sources of dust. And the, the work that was done by Greg Carling down at BYU basically said that 90% of the dust uh, that was being transported to the Wasatch Mountains is coming from these playas. Uh, and the Great Salt Lake just happens to be the biggest one. It happens to be the one that's closest to us. Uh, but luckily, it's not the one that's actually emitting the most dust right now. 
there are other areas, the severe dry lake bed, uh, the West Desert even, are uh, bigger dust sources right now than the Great Salt Lake. But what I'm concerned about is that the longer the lake levels are low, the longer the exposed crust is uh, is, is exposed, the more likely that it will actually start to become a significant dust source. That exposed crust, whether it's the Great Salt Lake or farther west, are people contributing to disturbing it? I'm thinking of hikers, bikers, off-road vehicles. Is that making, are, are those folks making it worse? So right now, 75% of the Great Salt Lake is covered by a protective crust, which does a pretty good job of limiting the dust production. Um, it's illegal to, you know, use ATVs out on the lake bed, but it still happens. Uh, there are some people that get permits to do that sort of thing. But anything that we can do to protect that crust, to prevent the type of uh, damage that would be done with ATVs, uh, would go a long way towards protecting that crest and limiting the yeah. uh, dust coming off of the Great Salt Lake. So we might be able to do that nearer to civilization, but that will be harder to protect 100 miles west out in the proverbial middle of nowhere. So I was intrigued in the, in the article I read recently that Leah Larson wrote in for the Trib about hot spots, specific spots in the lake that we need to be more cautious about. Yeah, so I did a complete survey of all 800 square miles wow. of the Great Salt Lake. I did it by fat tire bike uh, over a two-year period. Wow. Uh, I bicycled uh, more than 2,300 miles and took soil samples every 500 meters on all 800 square miles. Uh, so trying to identify you know, where the dust was coming from and what it was made out of. And as part of that research, we identified four hot spots, areas that are currently dust sources. Uh, Farmington Bay is obviously one of those. That's the one that's closest to us. Bear River Bay has an area that's uh, quite emissive. Uh, then uh, out in the West Desert near U.S., uh, or out of the western part of the yeah. lake near U.S. Magcorp is another area. That one's a little bit scary because it's also a Superfund site, and we don't know exactly what might be on the lake. Uh, and then uh, the extreme northwestern part, uh, the part that's been exposed for the longest uh. period of time. So you mentioned Magcor, what used to be Magcor, again, 20, 30 years ago, one of the highest polluting industrial sites in the entire nation. So these four hotspots you found in your couple-thousand-mile bike ride human created to some degree or that just happened to be where the dirt settled so to speak under the lake so with regards to the hot spots you need to have no crust or an eroding crust you okay. have to have a lot of silt and clay which are small particles and those silt and clay particles are more common you know where the rivers are coming into the lake well, that makes and sense. so mostly the dust hot spots are related to the physical nature of the crust uh, and the uh, the dust itself not necessarily you know pollutants that were there. Yeah. Does your work include anything that any of these industrial operations might be doing to mitigate or help? Uh, so we did see examples of uh, anthropogenic or human-caused uh, pollutants uh, out on the lake bed. You know, for example, you know, we, we all know about the Kennecott Tailings Pile, which is on the southern shore of the lake, and it's got elevated, you know, concentrations of copper, obviously, sort of thing, and other metals. And we see those sorts of metals have been deposited on the lake from blowing dust as well. Um, but there's a legacy of, you know, pollutants that have ended up in Farmington Bay. You know, back when we were doing leaded gasoline, there's a, there's a fair bit of lead in in, in Farmington Bay. There's selenium out there as well. I would think, you know, Utah had some of the first environmental lawsuits in the nation with farmers who lived around the smelting operations down Murray Midvale. That 
that smoke could not have been good for the lake either. <laughs> no, and uh, you know, there's other elements that, that we saw that were a potential concern as well. Um, you know, but uh, for the most part, uh, the one that I'm focusing in on is arsenic because that was the highest concentrations of any of the heavy metals that uh, we saw out there. Um, and they, they are higher than what the EPA would recommend for um, you know, exposure, routine exposure from uh, soil. So not only us breathing it, but I'm thinking, what about folks with backyard chickens? And then the arsenic comes down, and then the chickens are pecking around, and then you're eating the eggs. I mean, I could see, you know, nobody wants to be the apex predator and get all the arsenic from everybody else. Yeah. Luckily, the arsenic is a, a, a chronic exposure problem. So we need to be exposed to it over a period of decades in order for it to significantly increase our, our cancer rates. But we do have a more immediate issue just when we have big dust storms that come off the lake itself. Uh, that dust, you know, just by its very nature of being a particulate matter in the atmosphere, uh, is unhealthy. Yeah. And, and that's what we need to worry about. And everybody along the Wasatch Front will experience that at some point because these dust hotspots uh, are scattered about the lake. And just to be clear, to remind folks, you mentioned this arsenic is just natural. It's not something MagCorp necessarily dumped or some other industrial operation. That's my interpretation of the data, okay. in part because the concentrations of arsenic over the entire lake bed were very uniform. And if we had, you know, industrial sources, you would see hot spots of the arsenic. And we just didn't see that uh, on the lake bed. So try and move more optimistic here. Um, People have furnace filters. Should they pick a different kind of furnace filter? Should people not go to work on the bad dust days? Is there something governmental? Should we have bad dust warning days? What uh, might we do? The, the exact same thing that we do for uh, any other air pollutant is to minimize your exposure. Uh, so uh, we have a very good monitoring situation from the um, Utah Department of Air Quality. And uh, anybody can go onto their website and see what the air quality index is, and they can see a forecast for what it's going to be for the next day. And regardless of what those pollutants are made out of, whether or not they're smoke uh. or, or ozone or, or, or you know, nitrogen uh, species, uh, it's best to minimize your exposure uh, when those concentrations are high. So that's kind of a simple way to put it. It doesn't really matter what it is. Try not to breathe it. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So again, you could jog earlier in the morning. I mean, you could sort of change your schedule. What about for you in your own home? Do you have like a air indoor air purifier filter or anything? I actually, I actually do. Okay. Um, so Just I have two electrostatic, uh, you know, precipitators, which uh, you know clear the air in my rooms, sort of thing. Uh, I'm not. I don't have a particular, you know, pre-existing condition sort of thing, but I just try and minimize my exposure the best that I can. Okay. And so all this data that you've collected in this research that you're doing ongoing, I think you've been up at the U, what, close to 20 years. Um, does all that data lead us to a way that we could collectively as a society, aside from putting more water in the lake, other solutions that your data points to? Uh, my my. Data basically points to we need more water in the lake. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> and well, that sums it up. And uh. my data also tells us exactly how much water we need to cover up those dust hotspots as well. So we have targets now of, of what needs to do. And, uh, you know, if we gain 10 feet on the lake from where we are right now, we won't have a dust problem from the Great Salt Lake. So it might be 100 miles west. It might be that dust, but it wouldn't be right in our backyards Yeah, the Farmington Bay is the, actually the yeah. one that's the easiest one to mitigate with water because it doesn't require as much water to cover up the dust hotspots. So, I mean, we've heard all kinds of crazy stories, uh, piping in water from the Mississippi, piping in water from the Pacific Ocean. Um, I guess 
we could also talk about less lawns. We could talk about maybe not growing alfalfa. In, in t and I know you're an atmospheric scientist, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but the plans that we're hearing from the legislature to get more water in the lake, do you think that'll get us anywhere near the 10 feet you're talking about? If you had asked me two years ago, I'd have been really pessimistic about the future okay. of the lake. But the people of Utah have spoken. Uh, they are very concerned about the air quality issues. They're very concerned about the legacy of the Great Salt Lake. And they made the uh, legislators aware, uh, and the legislatures responded. The governor said that we have to save the lake. Uh, the Speaker of the House uh, basically said the same thing. They held a Great Salt Lake forum in January to learn more about the issue. And they made substantive you know, changes in the law that don't necessarily solve the problem, but they certainly move towards removing barriers to getting water back into the lake. Huh, well said. Are you one of the experts they listen to? Uh, yes, I was actually one of the keynote speakers uh, for the legislatures to educate them about the air quality issues associated with the dry lake. I could imagine that would feel pretty good after all the years of perhaps inaction that we've seen. Uh, Speaking I, it, as a pundit. It's been described as uh, not very sexy research, you know, prior to uh, the, the dust storms. It's kind of like studying, you know, coronavirus before the pandemic. Nobody seemed to really uh. care about it. But once the pandemic took loose, it became very much a hot topic. And that's the way that dust has uh, turned out to dust be. Dust is a hot topic. So a couple minutes left to chat with you. I would imagine, as someone involved in higher education myself, that having dust be a hot topic perhaps brings money in terms of research, which might be good for your department? Uh, yeah, absolutely sort of thing. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate to uh, basically get a National Science Foundation grant. Uh, and what it really did is, you know, there were several researchers. There were some at the Utah State University, at Brigham Young University, at the University of Utah, even Salt Lake Community College. And we were all competing for scraps. And we decided <laughs> to uh, actually uh, work together and we put in a proposal called Dust Squared, which is dust across an urban uh, summit transect. And it was funded by the National Science Foundation. It's a five-year project. And we're trying to understand the dust from its sources to its impacts along people uh, and it ultimately its impacts on the snow and uh, on, the, on the lakes and streams up there as well. So we've gone full circle here because that's incredibly collaborative, right? I mean, you as an atmospheric scientist, medical folks, soil folks, I think that's kind of exciting, actually. Yeah, and that's the one thing that I really love about science is I think the really big, um, you know, important topics are the ones that cross those boundaries. Okay, very good. Professor Kevin Perry, thank you. Again, you are Associate Professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Utah, so thank you, and perhaps... If this dust squared comes together or you have more data, come back, talk again. I'd love to. I especially like this notion of solutions journalism. So thank you for joining us on Radioactive. And our collective thank you as well to Salt Lake Tribune reporter Leah Larson. Again, you'll find the link to her articles in the show notes and all our coverage on the Great Salt Lake, of course. This conversation is aired through the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solutions journalism initiative that partners news, education, and media organizations, including KRCL, to help inform people about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done to make a difference before it's too late. Read all the stories, greatsaltlakenews.org. Dr. Perry, we only need 10 feet. Yep, that's all we need. Oh, it sounds like <laughs> it ought only. to be. It, <laughs> it sounds like it should be so easy. So we're going to take a break on Radioactive. We're going to listen to some Leo Kotke, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to get biking.
Salt Lake County's Green and Healthy Homes program helps create housing that's both energy efficient and safe for low to moderate income families, including refugees and regardless of legal status. Details at slco.org slash green healthy homes. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and their Loves Diversity Initiative. Mark Miller Subaru is a proud community partner of Project Rainbow, spreading love together this Utah Pride Month. Learn more at projectrainbowutah.org or markmillersubaru.com. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns, and this is your weekday episode on a Wednesday night, 90.9 FM KRCL, KRCL. Org. Coming up tonight, Democracy Now! That's 7 o'clock with Amy Goodman. Rude Awakening, of course, with Liz Schulte at 8. Maximum Distortion. Man, that show's been around a long time. How cool is that? With Forgash and Cody D. That's at 10.30. And, of course, Every Day is a Brand New Day with John Florence tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. And, again, my thanks to listeners like you, like your neighbors, like your friends down the street who have all come together and donated during Radiothon. And don't forget, you know, you can listen on demand. Any show from the last two weeks, you can check it out, including Radioactive, on the website. Just visit krcl.org. And gosh, if you don't have that little app on your phone and you've got a smartphone, you ought to be doing that too. So on to National Bike to Work Week. And I think I'm talking with folks who probably do a lot more biking than just to work. So joining us now on Radioactive to talk about biking, about safe biking, and making cities safe for biking, Kai Cox from the Bike Collective Salt Lake City. Hello. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? And you manage the Salt Lake City location, so there are others? Yeah, we have locations in Ogden, Provo, and St. George as well. And the Bike Collective, real quickly, you all do... Uh, so we're a nonprofit organization, and we uh, do we're one part bicycle recycling center and one part community bicycle bicycling resource, uh, educational resource, um, and you can come in and learn to work on your bike, learn about bikes, uh, shop at our thrift store, and and it can be like a shared workspace too, right? If you want to go in and work on your bike, you yeah. could be you could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you take bike donations we that do. then you'll refurbish and give to people in need or kids who need bikes. Yes. Because at one point you had a bunch of old bikes from my kids, so pretty cool. Yeah. I didn't know you had multiple spots. Amazing. Yeah. So you're growing. Uh, growing, yes. And uh, one of the things we're working on right now is we're uh, fundraising to, to buy and build a new building on Ninth uh, South. Oh, come yeah. back and talk about that when you move in. That's yeah. just fantastic. Also with us from Sweet Streets, co-founder and also on the board of Sweet Streets, Taylor Anderson. Hi. Hey there. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Sweet Streets, I love the name. Thank you. And you all are doing what when it comes to biking? So it's not just a biking group. This okay. is kind of an all the above, but that does include um, you know, creating more safe spaces for people to ride bikes as well. But it's just anything outside your front door, you know, anything that's in on the sidewalk, in the street, at the intersection, in the park, you know, these are all collective city things that help to make our city a little bit better to be. So things that don't have internal combustion engines. (laughs) Well, um, you know, it's it's in all the above. And so the changes that we advocate for are safe are to make the streets safer for everybody on them. That includes people that are driving cars. People that are in buses, people that are in, um, you know, wheelchairs, uh, people walking and biking. It's it's really is a collective, all of the above, um, trying to make our streets safer. Are a lot. I mean, this is. I think this is kind of unusual. We are so used to groups that are single issue, like we work for bikes or we work for hiking or whatever. So you've taken this really broad swath kind of approach. 
I think it was kind of easy to other some of those groups. They're doing great, great work. Uh-huh. Um, but we wanted to be like the collective voice that's channeling all these different groups that are doing these great things and say, hey, it's not just that cyclist over there. It's not just the pedestrian, quote unquote, which is kind of dehumanized. And, you know, who who was the pedestrian? It was a person. It was your neighbor, you know. Um, so, yeah, we, we wanted to come together and create kind of a political voice, a, a, you know, a collective voice to say we want some changes in our the way that our streets have been managed for for decades now. And, and you make a good point. There's people, there's bikes, there's parents, there's strollers, there's walkers, there's people who can't drive, there's people with, with walkers who are elderly, um, and they're all out there, whereas cars are big and heavy and fast and dangerous. So when we come to Salt Lake City, we've just seen this huge announcement about lowering the speed limit. I would think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, it's just one of those things that, that cities, states, counties, any municipality, any government can do on the streets that it owns and operates um, because all those groups plus the federal government own and operate their own uh, road networks. And uh, yeah, we were pleased to um, be one of several groups that were advocating for a lowering of our what's known as our default speed limit. Um, So when the city says, all right, what's the, the posted speed on this street? They said all local streets. These are kind of you know, where you would see homes, shops, schools, churches, you know, 70% of our streets are local streets. And the city council unanimously, um, uh, two weeks ago, I think, uh, yeah. voted to lower that default posted speed to 20 miles an hour in an effort to bring speeds down, which exponentially makes streets safer when, not if, but when cars hit people. Right. I mean, you've got kids playing ball in the front yard. You've got all these things going on and, and some people do drive faster. So we hope if everybody drives 30 in a 25, I hope people will now drive 25 in a 20. Let's just put it that way. Um, Kai, the Bike Collective, were you involved in this work to lower the speed limits, or you're just going to be a great benefactor? A great benefactor. Um, most of our work focuses on bicycles, providing bicycles and providing direct education on the machine itself. So equitable access to that, to bicycles for folks. And does that include sort of the safety side, like making sure every kid has a good helmet and bikes are, I mean, obviously working properly? We, we provide helmets when we can. Uh, that's another big part of the, one of the things that we give away. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll put this in the show notes, but I presume if someone is looking for a bike or wants to donate one, pretty easy to do that yes mm-hmm. okay so okay cool and i want to i want i don't want to get too far away from the bike collective because i think your work is fantastic but taylor it was a little depressing but i did see the salt lake city traffic violence map um which is basically a lot of dead people and a lot of wounded people between about red iguana restaurant and liberty park that's pretty depressing yeah, that was our attempt to kind of open people's eyes to the problem that is happening in real time. It's not a new problem. It's actually getting worse uh, in, in the past couple of years since COVID, actually. The number of pedestrians and people riding bikes, people outside of cars are being killed more often in the past two years than they had before. Uh, we have, the city has official sources of this information, and they, they do look at it and they make decisions based on it. Uh, but those data points are two to three years delayed. And so we're kind of looking back at what happened and it's easy to forget the kid that was walking to school that got hit by a car. I remember, uh, I think it was 400 South. Uh, I might be getting these streets wrong, but kids were just crossing the street to go to elementary school. Uh, I think the brother was on his sister's shoulders and they both got hit by a car. Um, it happens all the time. And we wanted to kind of put the face behind the name because these initial news reports when they come out are so scarce for details. There's no context on, you know, 
who was hit and what the existing built environment is like in that spot. And we just wanted to really open people's eyes to that. So it's really an unfortunate map, but we were happy to kind of help do that. I mean, you raise a good point when it comes to those issues. There is always the news, if it leads, it bleeds approach. And the news is so perpetually churning that today's injured or or killed child becomes something else tomorrow. And there's no time really taken to analyze Gee, is the is the speed limit too fast there? Should have there been a stop sign? Has anybody else ever been wounded or killed at this intersection? That often gets left, I think, in the wayside. Yeah, and I've been a reporter in the past. Okay, you know, it, I I understand the scarcity of details that that writers are working with. It's always coming from the police department. It's kind of who got hit, what, where, you know, and and often it's kind of like, well, what was that person doing in the street, you know, or or it's, right. <laughs> it's a, a driverless vehicle that has no responsibility attached to it for the accident that was caused or the crash that was caused, you know. Um, so I think there's a lot of education that we could do and we are working on to kind of highlight like these different pieces of object objective information that could be in these reports that goes a little bit towards uh, reminding people that these were people whose lives were permanently altered or lost when these yeah. crashes do happen. And again, it sometimes there's an accident, sometimes somebody's drunk. I mean, there's a thousand things going on, but too often it seems like the streets are pretty car-centric. Um, neighborhoods that don't even have sidewalks, for instance, let alone bike lanes and so on. Um, and I don't know, Kai, whether to ask you this or, or Taylor ask you, as, you this, but Having lived in, in the Bay Area, gosh, decades ago now, there were these huge Friday night bike rides, and we're starting to see that here, and I think that's kind of exciting. Uh, yeah, so it started, uh, I'd say, probably 20 years ago-ish Okay. Uh, with the critical mass rides modeled after rides in the Bay Area and Portland and other major metropolitan areas, um, and that... Uh, is where the initial group that started the Bicycle Collective met and started a network. Um, and uh, that has since, un like, you know, people, the bike community, I think, is really pretty pretty small. Salt Lake City is kind of a smaller city, and people really interact and know each other if they get into kind of niche uh, interests. But uh, a smaller group has started something called the 999 on Thursday nights, and that has kind of been going independent of kind of that original group but you know things grow and change and well, there ought yeah. to be room for two bike groups yeah so this is a don't in the 999 you meet at 9th and 9th 9th and 9th at 9 p.m on thursdays yep. so it's a night ride mm -hmm. kind of fun in the summer yep how many how many folks are jumping in these days i think it varies quite a bit depending on the weather and depending on what else is going on but i think sometimes there's upwards of a thousand folks that, that <laughs> wow does that uh does that piss off the cars the yeah. drivers, I should say. There's almost always some contention, right? And it's, it, yeah. Taylor. Taylor. I'm sorry to jump in. It's just the, <laughs> the only people you'll interact with on those rides. Um, it's a massive moving group. You can't control it. It's not like, uh, hey, let's go here now. You know, there's some leadership of like, you know, directing the rides a little bit, I guess. It's kind of organic. But the only people you, you will interact with that are angry are people driving cars. Right. It's my, been my experience, at least, but. But yet you're still doing it, right? It's still ninth and ninth. Hundreds of people show up again in a rainstorm. There's not going to be near as many. Mm -hmm. um, and at least in the Bay Area, from what I remember decades ago, it was a really <clears throat> unfortunate but successful way to wake people up to how car-centric the whole neighborhood and city was when it could be different. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, so are you on those rides? Are you there on Thursday nights? Uh, not very much anymore. It's a uh, huh. younger younger crowd than than myself <laughs> usually. <laughs> How far do they usually go? Uh, it, it there are some folks that will ride until two or three in the morning. Okay, mm-hmm. and again, it's a it's an am- amorphous anarchistic group. Yeah. So we have had some troubles with you know littering, vandalism, and so on, yeah. but. Then again, it is kind of interesting to see people out and about on the streets, Taylor, like you're saying, not in cars. Yeah, I mean, it's on my calendar for every night of the week. I'm not saying I get oh. out there. Friday morning gets a little bit tough um, when the ride starts at, at 10 p.m. But, um, you know, I would say for every kind of one person that might be a bad actor, like dropping a can or something like that, a spin drift or whatever, um, mm. there's a person that has a cargo bike and a, a, one of those things with where you pull a handle and it grabs a a Picking grabber, stuff up? A grabber, oh. picking it up and putting it in the cargo bike. There's so much, you know, it's just a collective of different little groups that's forming a mass group. I get chills when I talk about it. I get chills when I'm there. And I just, if anybody hasn't tried this for themselves, it's a pretty low barrier to entry. You know, if you're an outgoing person, even if you're not, you can stick to yourself. You can stick to your small group. It's very welcoming and it's nothing to be intimidated about. It's really something to see. And nobody's going to shame your bike if you have like a 30-year-old Cannondale like me, right? I hope not. I hope I'm in not. The same okay, boat. Just, just checking. <laughs> so, I mean, all this great bike work going on, um, trying to make the streets safer, um, this goes back a couple mayors painting more bike lines, things like that. I presume those things are good. I, I wanted to ask about 300 West, and I think I want to say between about 1300 maybe and maybe the freeway, there's raised and separate bike lanes now. Um, is that kind of construction what you would like to see? I don't know whether to, who to throw that to, Kai? Um, I mean, any protected lane, any kind of bicycle infrastructure is an improvement over none. Okay. And 300 West is a uh, terrible road, <laughs> uh, you know, both for how it's been maintained over the years and for uh, uh, non-motorized usage of it. Um, so any improvement is a good improvement. I, I think that having separated uh, bike paths or protected bike paths with concrete barriers and, and lots of signage, it's always safer and more comfortable for folks to ride in. Um, so I'm happy to see that there are improvements being made. And Taylor, improvements that you can get behind that, that have happened recently that the city or county have jumped on? Yeah, we're seeing a, a lot more talk and a lot more effort from the city going into its streets. Uh, 300 West was a great example. 900 East is another one of those recently built separated bike paths that are so much safer than just painted lanes and much much safer than shared lanes where you've got the bike emblem in the middle of the road and you know people don't Uh. nobody feels comfortable with that um so yeah i think we're heading in the right direction we have so many opportunities you know it's a collection of policy choices behind all of these things you know how wide they are where they end where they start again whether they connect to other trails there's always missed opportunities but there i think that there's a lot of good work going on and a mayor that's supportive of of that work and we've seen, I think, at least a couple streets, and I want to say downtown, where they've actually moved the parking, mm-hmm. so the bike lanes even farther away. You know, so you're, you're, you've got a somebody's Hondas between somebody's parked Honda mm-hmm. is between the biker and the moving cars, which seems potentially good. But I don't know what that does for pedestrians. It it. So uh, one example of that is 200 East. Um, All of our streets turn into what are known as collector streets. Those are wider, uh, faster. These were the Platte of Zion, 132-foot wide streets. Uh Turn a wagon around, yes. Exactly. And uh, that, that leads to kind of bad street design for everybody. 
What the city actually did by moving the parking off of the curbs is create two fewer lanes for a pedestrian to travel across, uh, you know, to, to okay. potentially be interacting with moving cars. So actually, in just with using paint and just by using, you know, applying a new policy, the policy being some fewer parking spots, moving where those parking spots are, which is off the curb so that a person on a bike can ride next to the curb and be protected by those parked cars. It made a much safer, a much friendlier 200 East. They did the same on 300 East. These are some of our safest bike routes in our city right now. We mentioned that violence map that you have. Are there maps out there to help riders know those safe streets? And where do we get those? I picked one up. At, it was the mayor, Mayor Mendenhall, did a uh, bike to work uh, day this morning. This morning, up. yeah, with like 40 other folks. Yes. Right. Yeah. And uh, um, there were there, there are city maps uh, out there. They do an OK job about mm. stress level. You know, when we talk about protected lanes, we're talking about the stress, you know, whether you would feel comfortable riding with a kid or somebody uh. who's not confident on a bike, perhaps. Um, so, you know, maybe that's uh, maybe that's the next map uh, under underway is to kind of work on something that shows the stress level and whether it's actually going to there might be a painted lane, but it might be a painted lane on a 40 mile an hour street that you're not going to want to ride on. Um, so TBD, there are city run maps that do show kind of what the network looks like today. Um, and we'll see yeah. about anything else. I mean, I'm I'm blessed to live in Summit County where there's been a lot of energy and a lot of money put towards trails, both gravel and paved separated and off from the street now there used to just be a painted shoulder lane and now there's a paved trail but again it takes civic engagement and money and whatnot mm -hmm. so kai bring you back in here we're talking about getting out there and biking and trying to do it safely and of course wearing a helmet um i busted my shoulder once when i cracked up my bike to miss a truck and all they wanted to talk about in the er was were you wearing a helmet mm. and it's like gd i was wearing a helmet but it's my shoulder that's busted um <laughs> But for folks looking to get into biking who aren't Kai, what would you, how would you get them going? Um, I would say a good spot to start is to come by our shop at the Bicycle Collective, um, and that's a it's a great place to to test ride a few bikes to see what kind of thing you're interested in, um, and there's lots of folks there like collectively with decades of experience riding bicycles for transportation. Um, we also have those maps Taylor was talking about. Okay. Uh, you can come by and we have a stack of them on our counter. Um, and that's a great way to sort of like like dip your toe in the water and okay. kind of see. And everything we sell is, is affordable compared to something like a full retail bike shop. And you don't have to deal with haggling with somebody on KSL to buy a lemon, you know. Uh, I mean, you can spend a lot of money on a bike these days. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can spend five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars on a mountain bike real fast, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of frightening. Uh, who should I ask about electric bikes? I'm not particularly a big fan, but man, I see a lot of them. Yeah, that's kind of a that's kind of a new new market that's been really expanding lately. Uh, really, any shop that specializes in them. Uh, most bike shops actually. Uh, so your Saturday cycles, yeah. your Cranky's bike shop, your contender will carry those brands, uh, carry the, the big brands and have really well-trained staff to help answer those questions. Hasn't quite trickled down into the thrift store donated market yet, um, but it's coming. Do you work on a bike collective? Uh, as, much, as much as we can sometimes, yeah. but a lot of that diagnostic stuff is, is pretty involved. Right, that's different than the like the the gear change mechanism and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Good point. How about each of you when you're out and about? Favorite rides? I do just a lot of commuting, uh, so, so I'll ride. I ride from yeah downtown to South Salt Lake, 
uh, six times a week. And cool. so just lots of lots of bike commuting. And you figured out streets, routes that are, I'll say, relatively safe? Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Uh, my, my particular favorites, I ride quite a, I ride a lot along uh, 2nd West, um, which has a protected bike lane. Okay. Uh, and that, take, that goes down, follows the tracks line down to, you know, about the ballpark area where you can hop over to West Temple where it's slower. That's kind of a narrower street, so it might not be comfortable for everybody. But uh, Main Street has big bike lanes. Um, mm-hmm. And 2nd East is a great street. 3rd East is a great street to ride north and south on. And road bike, road bike safe these streets, or are they yeah. the pavement is mountain bike territory? Uh, <laughs> usually the pavement's okay on these streets. I yeah, I have some pretty narrow tires on the bike I ride. So okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And again, if folks are interested, come to the bike collective. They could talk to all y'all because again, we've got gravel bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, yep. electric bikes, on and on and on and on. Um, who should I ask about something that I know nothing about, but I'm really curious, and that's the bike of LA. Uh, I'm a great person to talk to about okay, that. Okay, hi. I, I tell me about the Bike Valet because <laughs> I, I love the name and know nothing. Yep. So Bike Valet is a service that we offer for events that are in the area uh, where we have these like large-scale bike parking racks. Um, so for events uh, upcoming, our next one is Pride, the Pride Festival. Um, we'll have an area set up so that if you want to ride your bike to Pride, uh, we'll park it for you. You don't have to worry about locking it up. You don't have to worry about it getting stolen because we've got somebody that will watch it for you. It's a free service that we offer to the community. Um, uh, usually the event uh, booker will book us and, and schedule us to be there. Um, and, yeah, it's it's something that we have done for a lot of years. Uh, we used to do it at the farmer's market till the farmer's market got as big as it is. Um, and we've done it at, at lots of events around the valley. And it's something that if you if there's a big event happening and, and you want to have some bike parking there, you can send me an email. What a great idea. I always wondered bike valet. It's like, how how do I get involved? Um, I was in my local bike shop, gosh, a year ago now, the middle of the pandemic, and they had not a single bike for sale. Every single bike on the floor was sold. One of my neighbors bought a bike. It was six months before it showed up. So things have changed a lot. But I wonder, and again, folks can go to the Bike Collective, maybe find something used, maybe get a really good deal. Uh, You could give your old bike, come home with a new one. What do you see is changing these days in the biking world? Sorry, one more time. No, what do you see that's changing now in the biking world? Um, E-bikes really is the biggest development. That's the big thing? Okay. That's the big thing is people getting into e-bikes and and moving away from their acoustic bike, as it were. (laughs) Um, But... uh, so th- that's kind of the biggest change. It's becoming more expensive to get into those, um, but that opens up a lot of the secondhand market to folks that are that are trying to learn and, and get into a new bike yeah. that way. Taylor. I was going to say, uh, somebody mentioned the price of, of buying a nice new mountain bike, and the prices for e-bikes are, are pretty high, too. Um, I don't know what it costs to buy a car these days, but um, it's kind of up there. And these really are the number one most sold electric vehicle is an e-bike these days it's they are they are the next trend we are we're not like at the cusp of the wave we're not seeing it being built it's we're there uh the city should consider things like incentives to help people buy them like denver did and it saw it ran out of money like that um but these are the next thing there are more e-bike shops opening up every month and be prepared to see more of them on the streets so wouldn't it be wonderful if the streets would be more bike e-bike friendly right because i see a bunch of people on e-bikes where i live who have no business being on the trails Mm. um 
and maybe it'd be better if they were back on the street. So, Taylor, what about a favorite ride for you when you're out and about? I live off 200 East, and it really is a sleeper street. I just realized, because, again, everything in the street is a policy choice, and uh-huh. one of those choices is whether the signals uh, recognize, intersections recognize a person on a bike. The signals are just timed out well enough so that riding a bike, you're not getting stopped at every intersection. Oh, you're actually going to fly through. It's the quickest way to get downtown. If you're uh, somebody that's looking for a place to drive, maybe turn off the radio right now. Uh, it's a great place to ride a bike, a <laughs> uh, great place to walk. <laughs> and okay. speaking of speaking of sweet streets when the only a minimal amount of time left, there also is the closing of Main Street. We're looking at that in downtown in the weekends. Mm-hmm. There are other things going on to help people get out of their cars. Right, including we have an event this weekend, May 21st on Saturday, all across the city, Bike Walk SLC. Come check it out. Come join us, all ages and abilities. And how do people find out more about Sweet Streets? Uh, Find us on social media or uh, sweetstreets.org and come reach out. I love the name. Taylor Anderson, board member and co-founder of Sweet Streets. Kai Cox from the Bike Collective Salt Lake City. You manage the Salt Lake City location. Thank you. Thank you. And again, shout out because you've got multiple locations. I think it's fantastic. That is the show. That is Radioactive tonight. Thank you to all our guests. All kinds of stuff going on in the community. My thank you to everyone. Wow, it's been a great hour, and I appreciate all y'all taking time to listen. If you've got an idea for a show, if you like the show, if you've got something else you want to want to add, just reach out, radioactive at krcl.org. You can, of course, catch everything on demand at KRCL on the mobile app. I'm Nick Burns. Next up, Democracy Now! KRCL, Salt Lake City. Outdoor Afro celebrates and inspires Black connections and leadership in nature. Now with chapters in Salt Lake City and Park City. More details at OutdoorAfro.com.